Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. And look at verse 1 if you will. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn in a camp before Piahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. So the Israelites have gone from being slaves to soldiers, victims to victorious, for with God all things are possible. And after the last service from last Sunday, Patrick told me that his reference Bible made the case that there were at least 6 million Jews, whereas my estimation would be around, say, 2 million. But let's meet them halfway. Let's suggest there were 3 million. And his same reference Bible made the suggestion that if you were to observe all of the Israelites exiting Egypt, you've got around 68 miles of traffic. So imagine flying over such an exodus and just taking a look at 68 miles of people. It's hard to really grasp. Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. So Pharaoh is clapping his hands. I want to suggest a couple of things. I want to suggest that Pharaoh is like the Pope and Moses is like Martin. Martin Luther would clash with the papacy and Moses is clashing with Pharaoh. And if you think of people that lived during the time of Henry VIII, what Henry VIII was trying to do in essence was return Britain back to pre-Augustine days. Pre the arrival of Augustine, there were Christians, and some have credited such to uh, Joseph of Arimathea and others that arrived in Britain. Some have even suggested that Paul the Apostle made it to Britain. Hard to prove, but it's an interesting hypothesis. And with Christians in Britain, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, there was quite a presence. And then Augustine arrived and he said, convert or die, bow the knee to the Pope or perish. And here's the same sort of a thing. Moses would say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And the same would be true of Martin Luther when he came up against the papacy. But here, 1, 2, and 3, the Jews are on the move. And Pharaoh is of the belief that they are entangled in the land. Verse 3, the wilderness hath shut them in. So once again, this is in reference to the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds, nor the Bitter Lakes. A lot of people like to... Uh, discuss this and try and debate the truths of the exodus but so far pharaoh is hoping that the jews are going to return and the papacy would also be of the opinion that catholics ex-catholics would one day return to the papacy and i'll discuss that more this morning look at verse four and i will harden pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them and i will be honored upon pharaoh and upon all his host that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So once again, this is the Lord's world. He is the land owner, the land Lord of this world. And he can do whatever he chooses to do. You don't need to be a Calvinist, incidentally, to believe that. You don't have to believe in or be of the belief that God is all-powerful, like the sovereignty of the Lord, and be a Calvinist. Just because the Calvinists preach the most about the sovereignty of the Lord doesn't mean that for those of us which are not Calvinists that somehow we reject the sovereignty of the Lord. We do not. And here, this is all going back to what you find over in the book of Romans. I will harden those hearts that I wish to, and I will uh, show favor, mercy to those that I wish to do so. But of course, at this point, in the time of the great exodus, around 1500 BC, 
Through the foreknowledge of the Lord, he knows that Pharaoh is never going to bend the knee. He knew that Herod the Great and Archelaus and Agrippa would never bend the knee. And he looked through the history of mankind from beginning to end and he saw all of the popes and it would be the same with them. And a quick footnote, the devil knows quite a lot. He's not foolish. He's not naive. He's not uh, out of the loop, shall we say. He's not all powerful. Of course not. He's not everywhere at the same time. He's not able to read all of your thoughts, but he knows quite a lot. And he would study history. He would read the scriptures. He would quote the scriptures. If you get a chance, look at Matthew 4 sometime. Look at Luke 4 sometime. The problem that we have today is that a lot of people underestimate the power of the devil. And they don't always give him the credit, quote-unquote, that he is due. Five. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? that we have let Israel go from serving us. Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Because the Lord forced you to. He sent plagues, pestilences. He would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And the devil, hundreds, maybe a thousand or so years later, would return the compliment when he would also kill God's firstborn son on the cross. You see, when it comes to time... When it comes to days, weeks, months, years, time means nothing in the realm of the supernatural. And here you've got the Egyptians lamenting, asking themselves the question, why do we allow them to go? Like they had some say in the matter. If you think of Oliver Cromwell when he died, his son for maybe 12 months would replace him. But his son was weak, his son was incompetent, his son was effeminate. His son was probably a closet homosexual, the truth were known. And after a while, the powers that be decided to bring Charles II back. And they found the king and begged him to come back to Britain. And of course he did. Massive pay rise. Servants left, right and centre. Hampton Court Palace on tap. I mean, they really went to town, bringing him back into the UK. And for the first few years, people were pretty happy, pretty content. Life was good. And then after maybe 10 years of Charles II, an effeminate uh, bisexual king, a Catholic of course, people started to lament. They started to become nostalgic. What about old Oliver, the good old days when we had Oliver on the throne, the Lord Protector for 10 years? Things were pretty comfortable. A bit like what uh, people in Russia would say once the uh, Iron Curtain came down. People would say, you know, during the communist regime, things weren't so bad. And they'd say the same in Iraq with the fall of Saddam. And people were saying that under good old Oliver, things weren't so bad. We had more freedom. We could do this. We could do that. And now we've had Charles II, like I say, an effeminate king, bisexual king for 10 years. Taxes have gone up. And he's really putting the thumbscrews on us like what Pharaoh would do back in uh, the time of the Israelites under captivity. That's why it's called House of Bondage. And people were lamenting. And people were initially desperate for Charles to replace Cromwell. Now they were desperate to get rid of Charles II. People have very short memories. Very short memories. I saw a documentary of a guy in Iraq. It was a whole documentary about Iraq concerning post-Saddam. And this documentary, made about five or six years ago, went around uh, parts of Iraq. And people were interviewed. And it was the same sort of a thing. Yes, it was rough under Saddam. Yes, we had the secret police. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. But we had food on the table. And now we've got 
allies, we've got soldiers, we've got foreigners, non-Muslims, what do they call them, Kafirs, Kuffers, all over Iraq, we can't go here, we can't go there. We miss Saddam. And you think, really? And those two would have short memories. But here you're looking at the collapse of a regime, a very brutal regime, like the papacy. And once Luther said, let my people go, once Luther would nail his 95-point thesis to the door of that infamous church in Germany, Rome thought this could be the beginning of the end. This could really be the beginning of the end. I remember hearing a story about uh, the king of Saudi Arabia, turn of the 20th century, and he was very concerned that Islam would collapse around the world. And there was a lot of pressure, a lot of worry in the kingdom, as it's called, the kingdom of Saudi, and the king said, we can't allow Islam to collapse, we need to have a plan in place. And of course, you know what they started to do, invest in mosques all over the world, and now you can't reverse it. It's everywhere. But the point is this, the Egyptians had short memories, the Egyptians are in what we call denial, a lot of people are in denial. There was a terrible story that broke this past week of paedophile priests, predator priests in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, east coast of America. I mean, it was terrible. Hundreds of priests, thousands of children abused in ways that I can't even discuss. It's just so graphic. Even Hollywood wouldn't or would attempt to put such into a movie or a screenplay. And I've watched a lot of movies over the years. I've watched screenplays and I've read books and everything else. And I can't think of anything that has ever come anywhere near the depravity, the innate wicked depravity of these priests, hundreds abusing thousands of boys and girls, covered up right up to the level of the archbishop, the cardinal, under orders from the Vatican, the papacy. And just this morning, I checked my Twitter feed, and somebody has tagged me, suggesting that this is all propaganda. And I thought, yes, the same sort of people like Joseph Goebbels during the Third Reich. And it wasn't just Goebbels that would go before the German people and say that the Third Reich is getting a hard deal, a poor press. Goebbels would hire people to do just that. And these Catholics around the world, not all but a good number of them, are in denial. They don't believe it. They are dead from the neck up. They are spiritually dead. So it's the same sort of a thing. You've got Pharaoh, a type of the Pope. You've got Moses, a type of Martin Luther. You've got the Israelites in captivity bondage to the Egyptians. You've got Luther trying to set Catholics free from the grip of the papacy. You've got Henry VIII breaking free from the grip of the papacy. And as a result, the papacy, very spiteful, mean and cruel, crowd of gangsters, let's be quite honest, decided to uh, mobilise the Dominicans, the Jesuits, the Franciscans to move, to reclaim Britain. So we're not surprised, are we, when we read about the Egyptians lamenting over the loss of the people of Israel. And of course, had the Lord not stepped in to rescue the people of Israel through Moses being a type of the Messiah, then the Jews would never have released themselves, could never have escaped. And if it hadn't been for the Messiah, we too would never have been able to say that we are saved. Look at verse 6. And he made ready his chariot, and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. He's angry. He is furious. He's also humiliated. For hundreds of years, he thought he was untouchable. Like if you go back to the 
dynasty of the Herods or the Romanovs in Russia or even Saddam. He thought he was very powerful. In fact, his number two was a guy called Tarek Aziz. And Tarek Aziz was a very flamboyant uh, Catholic, a Roman Catholic, a huge Frank Sinatra fan. And Tarek Aziz would like cigars and he was very much into uh, enjoying himself. But even during the time of Saddam and Tarek Aziz and his lieutenants, there was, quote-unquote, freedom of religion to some extent. There were churches all over Iraq, and the Catholics were protected, the Coptics were protected, and it's probably fair to say there were a tiny minority of Bible believers in Baghdad. Tiny, tiny minority. But they were protected. 2003, Saddam is booted out, Aziz is arrested, put on trial, the Vatican try everything possible to get their man out, and they fail, and eventually he dies. So what you are looking at this morning is Pharaoh, like the Pope, resenting, being humiliated that the Jews are breaking out, if you will. He's lost his firstborn son, and again, the devil would wait until the Lord Jesus Christ would come to the earth, and it says how the devil would bruise the heel of the Messiah. Of course, we know that God the Father put Christ on the cross. We know that, of course. And we know that God the Son allowed himself to be put on the cross. And we know that the Spirit of God would resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. But we also know that the Jews crucified Christ. Paul tells you that from First Thessalonians. And also how the Romans would nail the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. So there are many groups and facets and situations at play when it comes to the death of the Messiah. But here it says how he made ready his chariot. This is Pharaoh. This could be Ramesses II. And I watched the Ten Commandments many years ago, which came out in 1956, produced by Cecil D. DeMille. A brilliant movie, incidentally. Brilliant movie. And I was sent a clip this week, and I think they must have re-released it on Blu-ray DVD. I mean, the colour is magnificent. Like Ben-Hur, another wonderful film. But like all biblical films, they take liberty. And in the Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston, Yor Brenner and Edward G. Robinson. I mean, these are top actors. Brilliant actors playing real people. Uh, Brenner plays Pharaoh. And in the movie, he goes after the Jews. And when he sees the waters uh, being divided and the Jews going through the Red Sea, and of course, Jesus Christ will walk on the sea, um, Pharaoh decides to double back to his palace. And that's in the movie. But of course, the scripture wouldn't say that. It doesn't say that. And he made ready his chariot, Ramesses II, and took his people with him, his senior lieutenants. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. What a sight to behold. If that figure of 68 miles is correct, if that figure of 6 million Jews is correct, and let's meet Patrick halfway, let's suggest 3 million Jews, and let's break that figure down to, say, 45 miles. That's still pretty much an amazing sight to behold. If you think of when the Allies landed in France and chased the Germans back to Berlin, and the Russians were also involved, and the Canadians and the Australians and the New Zealanders and the Americans. I mean, everybody was involved, pretty much. Only a few cowardly countries like Ireland and Spain and Switzerland stayed out of the fight. And that was quite a sight to behold. I think at the peak of 
uh, Operation Overlord, you had around 2 million, 2 million Allied forces, mm-hmm. and Churchill was desperate to get to uh, France, and the king had to overrule him. He said, you won't go to France, Prime Minister, you are needed in London, but that would have been quite a sight to behold. I mean, 2 million Allied soldiers chasing around 1.5 million Germans back to Germany, but here... You are looking at around perhaps 3 million, and I'm being conservative, but the figure from Patrick's commentary would suggest 6 million. Five abreast. Five abreast, and that's really something to think about if you had a drone hovering over or a helicopter. You'd be shocked to see so many people. Again, this is supernatural. Salvation is supernatural. God Almighty would choose himself Moses to set the Jews free. God Almighty would choose Martin Luther to free Catholics from the grip of Catholicism. And he would choose himself Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to set free all people from the captivity, the grip, the hold of the devil. Eight. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with an high hand, like high five. So you got around three million Jews, and I'm being conservative. You got Pharaoh, king of Egypt, like the emperor of the world, like the Pope of Rome. And he won't allow the Jews to go without a fight. And that's why the Council of Trent was called for. How can we repel Protestantism? How can we deal with Martin Luther? How can we deal with John Calvin? How can we deal with Henry VIII? And an order was issued from the papacy to assassinate Martin Luther. And you say, surely not. Surely a good Catholic church, Holy Mother Church, wouldn't issue an order to assassinate an ex-German monk. You better believe it. And that order is a bit like the Mafia. And they would issue orders to assassinate people. And here the papacy, and always be mindful that the Mafia are Sicilian. And Sicilians are Italians. And Italians are Catholics. That bridge that collapsed in Genoa a few days ago, apparently, according to the press, was built via the Mafia. Mafia were taking kickbacks. Mm -hmm. The Mafia are Catholic. They have shares. They have money in the Vatican Bank. The whole thing is linked up. But you see, Catholics are in denial. They close their eyes and they say, I can't see it. And you say, open your eyes, you fool. And they open their eyes and they've got their hands over their eyes. Take your hands off your eyes, you fool. And they still don't want to see it. They were in denial, going back to the paedophile cover-up, which went right up to the top of the Vatican for 40 years. And you got the mafia, the Sicilian mafia, working on how to make money out of, uh, out of Italy. You've got assassination orders being given by the Vatican to assassinate Martin Luther, like I say. And the dukes in Germany, the lords in Germany, said no. He is one of our own, and they protected him. But here the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, verse 8, and he pursued after the children of Israel. This is a suicide mission. A bit like the devil, Revelation 20, Armageddon. He's been detained for 1,000 years in hell. It says how Judas went to his place. And you would have thought, after 1,000 years of burning, and I don't mean purgatory, I mean hell, that that would have been quite a wake-up call for anyone, not for the devil. And he comes up after 1,000 years of burning, And he gathers the nations, and I mean nations, there's quite a few. And they march on Jerusalem, the holy city, and the Lord steps in. And just 
consumes them all. That, of course, is a suicide mission, and this is a suicide mission. And the children of Israel went out with an eye hand. So in spite of the anger of Pharaoh, in spite of the devil's hostility, hatred, sadistic, and just absolute loathing for Israel, and that hatred has continued down the centuries, and like I said last week, the only group that I hated more than the Jews are Bible-believing Christians. And yet in spite of all that, they go out with a high hand, and high hand like high five. So these eight verses are terrible. They demonstrate the depravity of mankind. They demonstrate Pharaoh's absolute uh, despair and inability to be reformed, to be saved, to be rescued. As far as I know, there are three Herods in the New Testament, and not one of them was saved. There have been, I think from memory, over 266 popes, if you count Sylvester, and they also they also like to count Linus, who they say succeeded Peter. And none of those popes, as far as I know, are saved. They all kick against faith in Christ alone. And therefore Moses, like Martin, like the Messiah, would be raised up to set people free, to free people from religion. And of course, as a result of that, those tyrants, ranging from Pharaoh to the papacy, and even dictators in countries like Iraq and elsewhere, would kick against it. In fact, just last week, or, or last month, I read about Gaddafi's son wanting to stand for parliament in Libya. He was a tyrant, his father was a tyrant, and yet he wants to stand for re-election. And you know what? He may even win. Nine. But the Egyptians pursued after them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamping by the sea beside Piahiruth before Baal Zephon. So once again you got this army being mobilised. And I mean a professional army, not some ragtag army. These soldiers, this crowd are the real deal. And around this time the Israelites, at best, have got around 600,000 men, but they are inexperienced, ill-equipped. If you think of Samson, if you think of the Philistines around that time, the people of Israel are in bondage. They have no weapons. They can't fight back, as it were. So the Lord would raise them up people like uh, Samson and Saul and, of course, David, Joshua, uh, and many others throughout the Old Testament because they can't save themselves. I can't stress this enough. When it comes to salvation, you cannot save yourself. It's like this. You're in a boat and there's a storm and there's a hurricane and the boat is sinking and there are, say, five or six of you on a boat and you are 30, 40, 50 miles from land and the boat is going down and some idiot shouts, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can't save yourself. And then somebody sends a helicopter and a rope is thrown out of the helicopter. Or somebody sends a rescue boat and lifeboats are dispatched to save the boat. And you've got people on that sinking boat saying, no thank you, we are going to wait for the Lord to save us. And the helicopter is dismissed, the rescue boat is dismissed. And those people of course all drown and meet the Lord in judgment. And he says, why didn't you... Jump on the rescue boat. Why didn't you take the rope from the helicopter? And these self-righteous, pious people say, Well, Lord, we were waiting for you to save us. And he said, I did save you. I sent you a helicopter, and I sent you a rescue boat. 
and you turn down both options to be saved. That's a great picture of self-righteous people trying to save themselves through the mass, trying to save themselves through organised religion. And unfortunately, like I say, Moses contrasts that to Martin Luther is going to save his people. Uh, Martin Luther would do just that. But unfortunately, a lot of people, and I mean in recent years, have decided to go back to the, the bad old days and a good number of Jews wanted to return to Pharaoh's prison camp. And that will be discussed later on down the line. And unfortunately for today, a good number of Protestant people also want to go back into the Pope's prison camp. And now I'm not over-exaggerating. There is no salvation in any system. And these Catholics that are posting messages on Twitter trying to repel the awful publicity which they've had over the last week are in denial. They are liars. And on top of that, they are just as bad as Catholic apologists for the Third Reich back in World War II. 10. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were so afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells you how Peter was afraid of the Jewish leaders. And around that time, Peter is probably 50. He's a married man. He's got children. And yet, he was scared of the Jewish leaders. And those Jewish leaders were heretics. Going back to Ian Paisley. Ulster's most firebrand Calvinist would take on the Pope, the Speaker of the House of Commons, would take on the British government, would street preach, would stand against Romanism, this and that. And he was terrified of Bob Jones. And he wouldn't dare speak against Bob Jones for fear of being ridiculed. And he thought to himself this, that perhaps Jones would stand up one day and say, Ian Paisley is a... King James only, uh, King James only character. He follows Peter Rutman, and Paisley couldn't live with that. And his daughter was at Bob Jones University, and he didn't want his daughter to be shunned and singled out as being King James only and following the beliefs of Peter Rutman. And that big, bold Ulster man, five-point Calvinist, was a coward. And the same would be true of Simon Peter, Galatians chapter two. And I say that because these are God's people. These are God's people. I don't think Paisley wasn't saved. I don't think uh, Peter wasn't saved. And here, God's elect nation, his elect nation, are scared. Fear, whether you like it or not, is a natural thing. But if you're not careful, it will conquer you. Look at 10 again. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, again, type of the Pope, type of the Antichrist, also in the tribulation, he will come after the Jews, and they will find themselves in Petra, they will bunker down, and they will hide themselves from the Antichrist. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, terrifying. And they were so afraid, it's natural. And yet, if the truth were known, they are lacking faith. Simon Peter lacked faith. In fact, Simon Peter would be arguing with the Lord. Acts chapter 10, not so, Lord. Nothing impure, unpure has ever entered into my mouth. And he's arguing with the Lord. You say, what's it all about? He had free will. And here, the children of Israel are afraid, like terrified. And Simon Peter, Galatians 2, is terrified. He's terrified of being shunned by his own peers. He's terrified of being called a Gentile lover. 
And Paisley was terrified about being called a King James onlyist, a Rutmanite, and he didn't want to be associated with the King James, not officially. He wouldn't stand up and say, this is the word of God without fault. And all of your other Bibles are all Catholic Bibles based on Catholic manuscripts going back to Antioch uh, in Libya or Alexandria, I should say, Alexandria, Libya. Contrast that to Antioch, Syria which is where the King James comes from. These are real men. I mean, Paisley was six foot two. He was a big guy. He had a big voice. And I've heard some of his sermons. Tremendous preacher, excluding the Calvinism, of course. And I can be sure that Simon Peter was also a great preacher. A fisherman, probably six foot tall. Real hands, a real man's man, an alpha male. And yet, when push came to shove, he recoiled. He was like a beta male. I can't stand against my own peers. Paisley said the same thing. And here the children of Israel are terrified of this pagan leader, Pharaoh, type of the Pope, marching towards them. He's got, what, 600 chariots? He's got probably 5,000 men? That's quite a sight to behold. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. What else could they do? So you've got perhaps 68 miles of people. You've got around 3 million Jews. You've got the most advanced army in the world, being the Egyptians, Coming after them, never in a million years did the Jews ever think they would break out of Egypt. And I guess the only nearest or the nearest equivalent would be World War II. I can't think of anything else on that scale. Every war since World War II have been really, really conflicts, campaigns on a much smaller scale. And the Lord stepped in and, like I say, would bless the work of Luther and would also bless the work of Henry VIII. But Britain didn't really take off until Elizabeth I. And of course she saw the Spaniards down. They sent 100 ships. two to 5,000 sailors. But the Spaniards outnumbered us by 3 to 1. A bit like Battle of Britain. 1940. And Elizabeth called for Drake. And other leaders. And special people. To come to her aid. And to cut a long story short. Post-Catholicism. And with the rise of the Protestant church, Britain was blessed. Whether you like it or not, Britain was blessed. And that blessing would wait for King James to arrive. And of course, James means Jacob. Jacob is prince. Prince James, King James. And of course, with the arrival of King James, the King James Bible would be called for, commissioned. And of course, the rest is history. So verse 10 makes the case how how, uh, Pharaoh wanted to regain the jewel in his crown like India was the jewel in the British crown and a guy called Gandhi came along and said we want independence and the British said never in a million years the British Empire will survive for thousands of years a bit like what uh, Hitler would say back in the 20s and eventually by 1948 Gandhi has got independence and Think about uh, empires generally around the world. They come to an end. And of course Egypt would come to an end. Babylon would come to an end. The Romans would come to an end. And the final empire of the world is America at the moment. America is the last superpower. But she will collapse one day. She will collapse under her own power, her own uh, corruption, her own wickedness. Every nation collapses eventually. And the ultimate nation that is going to collapse is of course the papacy so i think you've got enough for this morning you've hopefully seen the 
incredible similarities between Pharaoh and the Pope, Moses and Martin Luther, Henry VIII wanting to rescue Britain from the clutches of Romanism, going back to pre-Augustine days. And like I say, when Augustine would arrive, he would say, convert or die, bow the knee to the Pope or perish. That is lost. Most historians won't tell you that. Most historians don't want to accept the truth. Post the time of Cromwell, post-Cromwell, under Charles II, people were reminiscing, a bit like you just read this morning, concerning the Egyptians and even the Jews, which we'll look at next week. And they start to kick against Moses, like they would do against the Messiah. And people were initially desperate for Charles uh, to come back to claim the throne. And eventually, after maybe 10 years or so, they were desperate for him to be fired, to be removed. But the types and shadows continue because God, like I say, would kill Pharaoh's only begotten son, and Satan would return the compliment over 1,000 years later. Therefore, time in the realm of the supernatural means absolutely nothing. Revelation chapter 1 says uh, how time uh, means nothing and how the devil has little time. And like I say, he knows far more than we give him credit for. The Red Sea is just that, the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds, not the Bitter Lakes. But unfortunately, you've got people that are in denial, not just concerning the map of the Great Exodus, but wickedness in general. Uh, The Jews around this time have got probably 600,000 men, but they're ill-equipped. So on paper, there's no way that they could win this. No way. If you go back to the Troubles in Northern Ireland, there was no way that the IRA could beat the British Army. On paper, there was no way that the Viet Cong could beat the Americans. And yet the Viet Cong beat the Americans. And in a roundabout way, the IRA beat the British. Britain surrendered to the IRA. America surrendered to the Viet Cong. And if you think of Afghanistan, the Mujahideen beat the Russians. And on paper, the Russians should have just demolished the Mujahideen, but of course they were able to outsmart uh, the Russians. But the overall message I I wanted to get from this morning's live sermon, which incidentally, this is week number 33, this is hour 19 and a half, is how a good number of Jews wanted to return to Pharaoh's prison camp. Can you believe that? And today a good number of Protestants, apostate Protestants, want to go back, want to go over into the Pope's prison camp. And once they arrive in Rome, what do they say? Rome, sweet home, a corny sound bites. But once they go over to Rome, there's no assurance of salvation. And once they go over to Rome, they have to become defenders of that system. They have to defend the awful paedophile story that we've read about this week. And they close their eyes, they put their hands over their eyes, and they won't see it. A bit like Paul. He wouldn't see that the Messiah was Jesus Christ. He was killing the Lord's people. A bit like Henry VIII would do on the orders of uh, Thomas Cromwell. And Thomas Cromwell was killing Christians left, right and centre on the orders, I should say, of Henry VIII. And yet in spite of that, the Lord still used Henry VIII and Elizabeth I and ultimately King James. So I'll say this one final time in close that as far as I am concerned, Catholic apologists today are just like Nazi apologists during World War II. And after World War II, many of those Nazi apologists that worked for Goebbels were put on trial, and rightly so. And I wonder if that needs to happen again. I'd like to see some wealthy Catholic rise up and say they are ashamed of their church, 
and the news which came out this week and how they are going to raise money to take care of the victims and bring private prosecutions. And of course, you know that won't happen, but it would be, it would be very nice if it was to happen. So from Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 9, would be a very clear picture of the devil pursuing hearts on the heels, the body of Christ, because the devil cannot take you to hell. He cannot damn your soul to hell forever, because like I've already been saying over the past 34 weeks, that your soul has already been purchased. So what he can do is put the fear of hell into you. And that's something which takes place I'm afraid to say on a regular basis, a lot of weak Christians, spiritually weak, spiritually immature, unable to see through the fog or the haze of a lot of heretics and such come along and trip, I'm afraid to say, a good number of Christians up. So please remind yourselves that this chapter is dealing with God's elect nation. Look at verse 11, if you will. And they said unto Moses... Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Talk about being ungrateful. Almighty God has just delivered at least two million Jewish men, women and children. Thousands of livestock. They're going to go through the Red Sea. And if you think of salvation today, starting from... The Lord's conception to his crucifixion, from his crucifixion to Pentecost, from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. Tens upon tens upon tens of millions, perhaps two, three, four, five, six hundred million Christians and a good number more are going to be saved during the great tribulation. And yet time after time we turn around and start to murmur. We start to complain. We start to kick against the mercy of the Lord. And here again you've got God's elect nation. And again this is important to make the point because such people are ungrateful. And it's my belief that a good number of people today are also ungrateful. Look at 12. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Really? You want to go back to being paid a bowl of rice a day? You want to go back to King Charles I or King Charles II? You want to go back under the papacy? You want to try and keep the law, do you? One of the great blessings of the Reformation via people like Martin Luther. And again, Martin Luther is a picture of Moses, the deliverer. Or Martin Luther is a picture of the Messiah. And one of the great blessings that came out of the Reformation was how the Lord would deliver millions of Catholics all over the world from the darkness of the papacy. And like I said last Sunday, tragically, a good number of apostate Protestants want to go over to the Pope's prison camp. And this goes back to our hearts being no good. And I want to discuss our hearts this morning and people start to murmur, they start to complain. And this will be a problem for the Lord Jesus Christ, found very clearly from John chapter 6. He says he's the bread of life. He calls himself the Lamb of God. He says he is the Messiah. And he's saying that we have to eat his flesh, drink his blood. 
He's saying he's the way, the truth, and the life. How no man comes to the Father but by him. Who does this man think he is? And this goes back to that old term, familiarity breeds contempt. Because a good number of people lived during the time of Moses. And Moses, of course, is around the age of 80 when he comes of age. And had you lived with Moses, had you grown up with Moses, had you grown up with the Messiah, or had you grown up with the apostles, there's every chance that you would have been jealous. You wouldn't have liked the idea of somebody that you associated with at nursery or junior school or senior school now making the case that they are the messiah but this goes back to what i said last sunday how memories are very short people have very short memories look at verse 13 and moses said unto the people fear ye not stand still and see the salvation of the lord which he will show you today for the egyptians whom ye have seen today you shall see them again no more forever. A great picture there of the devil. You won't see him anymore. He's no longer your father. He's no longer your master. He's no longer your Lord. Go to John chapter 6. You will see the salvation of the Lord. In the context, physical deliverance. But from John uh, chapter 6. John chapter 6. Uh, verse 40 deals with spiritual deliverance. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So John 6, the Messiah, is in a synagogue, surrounded by his own people, and the Jews can see him, they can hear him, they can walk with him, they have personal fellowship with him, Fast forward to the end of John's Gospel, he says to Thomas how blessed he was, how honoured he was, how privileged he was to have believed as a result of seeing the Messiah, and yet those of us today, we've never seen him. We've never heard his voice, we've never walked with him, we've never dined with him, but we are saved, and we are saved by our faith in him. But here, this is the will, this is the work of him that sent me, Father sends the Son, that every one, without exception, which seeth the Son. Now in the context, physical sight, of course, but for today, spiritual sight. And believeth on him, believeth in him, may have right now everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Go back to Exodus chapter 14. So very clearly, from John chapter 6, you're saved by seeing the Messiah. No works involved, no baptism no confession, no speaking in tongues, no church membership, no tithing. But for Exodus chapter 14, the Jews are going to see. They're going to see the Lord at work because the Jews are entitled to a sign. Go back to the earlier chapters from the book of Exodus. Moses, on one occasion, is given leprosy as a wake-up call to show him that he's in the presence of the one true God. And he puts his hand back into his clothing and the leprosy is gone. The Messiah turns up and it says over, and I think it's First Peter from memory, how he took all of our sicknesses upon himself and by his stripes we are healed. So again, the similarities are far too great to recall. But 13 again, Moses said unto the people, fear ye not. And again, people say that if you're saved, you shouldn't fear. And of course, you shouldn't fear. 
But the apostles would fear. First John says how fear has torments. And he then turns around and says how perfect love will cast out fear. Fear ye not, God's elect nation. Fear ye not, like all of you. Stand still. Later on, you'll be told to stand still, be silent, and know that the Lord is God. And see the salvation of the Lord. With their own physical eyes, they will see Jehovah step into time and save at least two million Jews at the most Around 6 million Jews. What a sight to behold. For the Egyptians. For the Catholics. Can I take some liberty here? For the Egyptians. For the papacy. For the Egyptians. For the devil. Whom ye have seen. Today ye shall see them again. No more forever. So a switch of ownership. Is about to take place. Paul told you from the book of Acts. How you've been saved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is what repentance is in a nutshell. You go from knowing of the Lord to knowing him personally. And I've used an analogy over the years of that soldier outside the palace in London. And uh, every day the queen drives past him. And he sees the queen and her dameless sovereign. And she goes into the palace and he stands to attention, salutes her. He knows of her. He's been there for 15 years. And then one day, he is introduced to her. He shakes her hand, and he's gone from knowing of her to knowing her personally. And here you've got around two and a half, three million Jews who know of the Lord. They know of the Lord. Going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now, they're going to be introduced to him in a physical sense. They're going to see him do a wonderful miracle, because the Jews are entitled to signs. 14. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Be silent, and know that I am the Lord. This is the Lord's battle. Salvation is of the Lord. It starts off with salvation coming vicariously via the Jews. John chapter 4. And of course the Jews, in their small numbers, would receive the Messiah. And after a while of rejecting the Messiah, the apostles, all saved Jews... Turn to the Gentiles. But here Moses wants to calm the people. They've just left Egypt. They've been there for over 400 years. The queue goes back 68 miles. You've got 600 chosen chariots from verse 7. And captains over every one of them. You've got possibly a brigade. Today in the British Army. A brigade is around 5,000. And I'm being conservative here but... You've got around a brigade of Egyptians hot on the heels of the Jews. They've got spears, they've got arrows, they are armed to the teeth. And the Israelites are a beaten down people. Yes, they're up in numbers, but on paper, on paper, they can't possibly win this battle. Going back to how this is supernatural. So Moses, like the Messiah, Moses, like Martin, wants to calm the people. The pressure was enormous on those in Germany back in the day of Martin Luther. And he got a lot of Catholics to get saved. They became ex-Catholics. But the pressure was enormous on them to go back under the papacy. And the same would be true of the Jews in the first century. They came to Jesus. And the pressure was enormous on them to abandon Jesus. 
And over in John 6, 6, 6, count the sixes, 6, 6, 6, it says how many of his disciples walked no more with him. And they went back under the law, trying to save themselves. And some Catholics that got saved during the time of Martin Luther buckled and went back under the papacy. And here it's the same sort of a thing. Moses wants to stop Jews, it could be hundreds, it could be thousands, from going back into Egypt because they actually thought can you believe it that they were better off under the Egyptians 15 and the Lord said unto Moses wherefore criest thou unto me speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward but lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground to the midst of the sea go gospel good news Go, go into all of the world, preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Go, gospel, God, good, do something. If you are saved, get busy. And here the Lord says to Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Why are you crying unto me? Why are you pleading with me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward, march forward. Israel is pictured as an army and in the army you have the sergeant major and he gets you into physical shape and also professional shape as it were and his job is to march you and he would march his platoon, his brigade, his battalion to be more precise anywhere from 100 yards to 100 miles and here Moses, General Moses if you will Contrast that to Captain Jesus is leading his people out of Egypt. Messiah leads the Jews out of spiritual Egypt. Captain Jesus saves the church and takes us out of Egypt being a type of the world. But you've got to push forward. You have to appropriate the atonement. There's no point just sitting back on your hands and saying, praise the Lord, all is well. I'm going to Allow the Lord to do everything for me. What do they say? The Lord helps those who help themselves. You have to do something. You have to apply yourself. And here Moses wants the people to move in their numbers. 17. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. That's what this is all about. It's power. The Lord has sat back for 400 plus years and he's watched Pharaoh, type of the Pope, calling himself Holy Father. And he sat back for hundreds of years and he sees the Pope in Ireland and he sees thousands on the streets welcoming the so-called Holy Father. And he sits back for 400 years and he sees Pharaoh, a God in the eyes of his own people. And he sits back and he says, I'm going to destroy Pharaoh or King Herod, Acts chapter 12. I'm going to destroy King Herod. And eventually he will destroy the papacy. If there's one thing that many times we all forget, including saved people, is how jealous the Lord is. He's really jealous. He won't share his glory with anyone or anything. And to see thousands of Catholics on the streets of Ireland this weekend is an absolute disgrace. I read of one report last night how the Catholic Church owes... The Irish government, 1.5 billion euros in damages. 
What took place in Pennsylvania is nothing compared to what took place in Ireland. 3,000 priests over a 40-year period abusing tens of thousands of Catholic boys and girls, nuns abusing young mothers, and those young mothers abusing other young mothers. It's like prisons in the UK. You've got gangs on every wing governing the prisons. The prison officers are terrified, so we read, to engage these prisoners. And if you go back to as late or as recent as the 1980s, you've got 17, 18, 19-year-old single mothers, slave labour in Irish women's hospitals, orphanages, laundries, call it what you will, and they are bullying 15-year-old girls, 16-year-old girls, single mothers, and these good old nuns, sisters of mercy, more like sisters of Satan, showed no mercy, were incredibly sadistic, beat, raped, and even murdered some of those girls. And yet to see the Irish Taoiseach, and get this, a practicing homosexual, meet the Pope, and the Pope shook his hand. And yet, if you are a Catholic, if you are divorced, you cannot receive the Eucharist, can you? You are shunned from receiving the Eucharist, aren't you? And of course, you know that as a Catholic, Eucharist, or the Eucharist, is connected to your salvation. And I can think of several high-profile Catholic men and women who are divorced, and some through no fault of their own, and their church is still punishing them, still punishing them. And yet the Pope breezes into Dublin, the world and his wife are out to meet him. The cost to the Irish taxpayer is in the millions. And he shakes the hand of the Irish tea shop, no problem. And yet if you are a Catholic man or woman and you are divorced, you are shunned. And you sit to the back of your church, you can't receive communion, can you? How do you feel about that? Drop me a line sometime. But here the Lord is going to take Pharaoh, type of the Pope, type of the Antichrist, and destroy him. Look at 17 again. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Not just Pharaoh, but his crowd. The papacy replaced pagan Rome. So the papacy, if you will, replaced Caesar. And the cardinals replaced the Roman Senate. And therefore the Lord one day will not only destroy the papacy, but the entire system. And they shall follow them like into the sea, like mass suicide. But of course it's not suicide. This is the Lord's vengeance, his anger. And I will get me honour upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. At least 5,000, and I'm being very conservative, at least 5,000, like a brigade, 5,000 strong, and Almighty God is going to just sink such people into the sea. And people say, but God loves everyone. Yeah? Does he love the Egyptians? Did he love Pharaoh? He's going to take Pharaoh and his senior lieutenants, his own private army, and sink them. Into the sea. What does it say from Mark chapter 9? If you cause one of those little ones that believe me to stumble, it were better for him that a millstone was hanged, put around his neck like a noose, and then cast into the sea that he should drown. A slight paraphrase from Mark chapter 9. Where's the love there? What took place in Pennsylvania 
is shocking. And that's still developing. We are watching it very carefully. And what took place in Ireland decades ago and what has taken place this weekend in Ireland is wicked. And don't worry, the Lord is on top of all of this. And he will deal with it in his own time. But now we are looking at Pharaoh, a god in the eyes of his own people, a deity in the eyes of his own people. And yet the Lord is going to destroy him. 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten me honour upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. I am the Lord. This is my world. Yes, I allow the devil to do what he does at my good pleasure. But I own the title deeds to this earth. Revelation says how the Lamb of God one day will open the title deeds and do as he pleases. Our God is a very patient God. A very merciful God. A very loving God. But he's also a very jealous God. And we've lost that, I think. We've lost that. We don't always appreciate that. We talk about the judgment of God and the grace of God. And I want his mercy. I don't want his justice. Do you want his justice? I don't want to stand in his presence and face the justice of God. I wouldn't last five minutes. Would you? I want his mercy. But here for Pharaoh, it's too late for his lieutenants, his chariots. It is too late. And of course, go back to pagan Rome. Collapsed under the weight of its corruption. And unfortunately, with the collapse of pagan Rome, commenced papal Rome. And like I say, the popes replaced the Caesars and the cardinals replaced the senates in Rome. And the people in Rome replaced the parishioners around the world today. I'll tell you something else. It wouldn't surprise me one bit if some of those people in Dublin this weekend have also experienced the abuse of their own children. It wouldn't surprise me one bit. What they say about the Lord Jesus Christ, crucify him. Wouldn't they say that? Let his blood be on us and on our children. Go back a year or two earlier. He has fed 20,000. He has healed people left, right and centre. He's put families back together. He has saved people. He has raised people from the dead. And yet what are they saying? Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We have no leader but the Pope. Let his blood be on us and on our children. How quickly people forget. 19. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. You got a guard at the front and a guard at the back. Angel of God, Christophany, Jesus Christ. This is supernatural from the beginning to the end. Paul told you how it is God's good pleasure to present himself a blemish and unprovable bride without spot or wrinkle, that blemish to himself. But of course, along the way, we can deviate as saved people. Going back to what I said at the beginning of this live broadcast, how Satan cannot destroy you. He cannot take you to hell because you are saved. But what he can do is put a lot of bumps in the road, as it were. He can put a lot of fear into you. He can question or he can get you to question your own salvation. And he can really cause Christians to have a spiritual car crash, become shipwrecked. Angel of God, Christophany, which went before the camp of Israel, two to six million, removed and went behind them. 
protection. And the pillar of the cloud, picture of the Holy Ghost, went from before their face and stood behind them. Double security, like once saved, always saved. You couldn't get anywhere near the Israelites if you tried all night. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. So that the one came not near the other all the night. Darkness has nothing in common with light. Light has nothing in common with darkness. Paul told you from Second Corinthians how fellowship or yoking up is an affront to the Lord. You were told to be separate. And Second Corinthians six fourteen to eighteen from memory made the case how uh, you are to have no contact, no fellowship. That's really the word I'm looking for. No fellowship with unsaved people. Yes, you can witness to them, but you have no fellowship with such people. But I want to go back to what I said at the beginning of this message, how familiarity breeds contempt. Go to Matthew chapter 15. It's my belief uh, that a good number of the Jews that came out of Egypt, like Miriam and Aaron, resented Moses. If you think of the Lord Jesus Christ's brethren, they too would resent him. Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15. And this is what really this is all about. It's jealousy, it's envy. Hey, I went to school with that guy, Moses. Yeah, I went to school with him. Or I went to school with Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus. I know Mary, I know Joseph and his brothers and sisters. And now he's turning up and turning around and saying that he is the Messiah. Who does he think he is? Uh, Matthew 15, Matthew 15, look at verse uh, 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. And homosexuals say, when did Jesus Christ ever condemn homosexuality? That's always a favourite of theirs. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. Not good thoughts. Evil thoughts. Murders, like abortion. Adulteries. Not just physically, but spiritually. The Pope is a spiritual adulterer. He's going around Ireland this weekend... Preaching in the name of my saviour, not in the name of his own saviour, being the devil, or as he should be referred to as the leader of the church of Constantine. He is a spiritual adulterer. Fornications, going back to those poor women in Southern Ireland that had children out of wedlock. And no, I don't condone that. But those poor women, young women, young mothers were sent into women's homes and had an awful time. And here's the thing, why are we not hearing more from celebrity Catholics? I saw a thing in the the paper this morning, Liam Nielsen, Mm. a top A-star actor, and Liam Nielsen, 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 Neeson, excuse me, Liam Neeson, raised a Catholic, he's now agnostic, Mm. is making a new movie, exposing this scandal in Ireland. I look forward to watching it. But wouldn't it be nice if someone like the late John McCain or Jeb Bush, or Nancy Pelosi, put money on the table to allow these victims to sue the Catholic Church. Here you are, people. Here is money. Sue the Catholic Church. Never mind impeaching the president. How about impeaching the Pope? A quick story. 25 years ago, a leader, a member of Tony Blair's government, Northern Ireland Secretary of State, very powerful man, came to the end of his time in office, 
and news was relayed to him about an awful terrorist incident that took place just before the Good Friday peace agreements, which of course took place, what, 1999, Easter? 99, from memory. And this Secretary of State was just about to leave office and contact was made with this Secretary of State, a very powerful man, like I say, about how this family had experienced a murder. One of their own had been murdered by the IRA. And this very powerful man did a very kind thing, which hasn't really been reported uh, in recent years. He gave this family £50,000 out of his own pocket to bring a private prosecution against the IRA. And yet you won't see that taking place from conservative Catholics, wealthy Catholics, taking the Vatican to court. And I've got so much more I could say about it, but I won't. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Evil thoughts defile a man. You still think that you're doing well? People say, but I can't find homosexuality here. I can't find paedophilia here. I guess that's okay, is it? This is the stupidity when it comes to biblical illiterates. They don't really read the scriptures. They don't believe the scriptures. They pick and choose which parts they want. And because they can't find their own sin, clearly, in the book, and of course it is there, you may have to go back to the Old Testament to really find it, but because they can't find it in black and white in the New Testament, they think they are good to go. And of course they are not. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Go back to Exodus. So the reason why I took you to Matthew 15 is to show you how ungrateful God's elect nation were back in chapter 14. Their hearts were no good. They were kicking against Moses. Contrast that to their kicking against the Messiah. And because they were kicking against the Messiah, or the reason why they were kicking against the Messiah, is quite simply because they were unregenerated. Unregenerate. Still the Lord's people, technically, historically, but they don't like Moses, they don't like the Messiah. And only Joshua and a few other senior leaders would make it into the promised land. So we will close it there in verse 20 and... Allow me to say one final thing, if I may. We sometimes lose track, or we can't always relate to how awful it was for the Jews living under the brutal regime of Pharaoh. 400 plus years, working six, seven days a week. Women having children uh, prematurely due to the pressure, due to the strain. And the moment the Lord raises up Moses as a deliverer, A good number start to kick against him like the Messiah. And I caught an interview this past week of a man who wrote a book about North Korea. Very interesting interview. And he said this. He said, well, in North Korea, it's a major prison camp like Egypt uh, under the Egyptians. And he said, everyone is watching everyone. Far worse than the Stasi in East Germany uh, during the Cold War. And that wasn't bad enough. Every week they uh, they have public confessions public confessions and he said this he said uh, employers are compelled to come face to face with their employees and their employees will stand up every week and call out their employers and they will say that brother such and such was late for work on monday 
sister such and such left work early on Monday. I mean, minute stuff, trivial stuff. And a member of the secret police is in the area, in, you know, in proximity of this, in the area, in the room. And he's watching everything. He's making notes of this public confessional scenario, situation. And that's done to cripple the people through fear. That's pretty brutal, isn't it? That's pretty brutal. I mean, that guy, Kim, his own country is a major prison camp. I think 11 million mm. people are in prison. And yet when he went to Singapore in June, people were taking selfies with him. And he was treated like a pop star. Now, I can appreciate world leaders trying to be professional with their own deferential diplomatic protocol. But when you get ordinary people taking selfies with Kim, and they did, or Catholics on the streets of Dublin wanting to just get a glimpse of the Pope, just wanting to touch his hand, touch his clothing. Or go back to King Herod, Acts chapter 12. They said, this isn't the voice of a man, but of a God. And Almighty God says, no way. I am the Lord. This is my world. All the races came from Noah's three sons. And now I'm going to rip. I'm going to punish people. And this is the reality of the whole thing. But one final thing I want to say when it comes to the problems that the Messiah was up against and Moses was up against is people are ungrateful. Whether you're saved or unsaved, we are all at times ungrateful. And when we are ungrateful, we can slander, we can insult, we can undermine the message uh, from Moses, Messiah, and even Martin Luther to some extent. But what do they say? Don't shoot the messenger. Mm. And yet what do we do? Time after time we shoot the messenger. We attack God's people, historically Moses, historically the Messiah, and also Martin Luther to some extent, because it's easy to do that, isn't it? We can't get to God, we can't get to Jesus, so we get to the messengers. And of course when we do that, we shoot ourselves in the foot, and if we're not careful, send ourselves to hell forever. Exodus chapter 14, Exodus chapter 14, look at verse 21 if you will. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Professor Volzinger, and I hope I pronounced his name correctly, is a scientist, a mathematician at the St. Petersburg Institute of Oceanology in Russia, and he says the following concerning such an event that the wind must have blown all night at 67 miles per hour. It would have taken the Jews four hours to cross the 4.2-mile reef. Then in half an hour, the waters came back, resulting in the drowning of the entire Egyptian army. He goes on to say that he is convinced that God rules the earth through the laws of physics. So not all scientists are atheists. Not all scientists are Darwinists. A lot of scientists are creationists but of course you wouldn't hear that you wouldn't expect to be told that because there is a conspiracy going on there is a conspiracy going on at colleges schools universities the governments around the world will fund these uh, scientists to push evolution darwinism 
And because most people have gone through the public school system, they don't know anything else. They are told that evolution is a fact, quote-unquote, and they believe that all of the best brains around the world are atheists. They're not. Yes, it's true, a good number are, but they're not all. And here, 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, picture of the cross, and the Lord, triune God, caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And like I say, the good old scientist in uh, Russia would suggest, and is of the belief, it took four hours, because again, the Jews count their days evening to the morning. I made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. It's supernatural once again. You've got the Egyptians hot on the heels of the Jews. The Egyptians, led by Pharaoh, contrast that to Messiah up against Herod, or contrast that to the Jews up against the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. And Pharaoh, a cross between a prime minister, an emperor, and a general, has got at least 5,000 heavily armed soldiers, spearmen, the best of the best. I guess a cross between probably Rommel and Patton. And if you go back to what I said last Sunday in the British Army, they have a brigade of around 5,000, and the Germans have a division of around 5,000. So I'm being conservative when I suggest that Pharaoh put at least 5,000 men together, and they moved. They had chariots. For today, we would say tanks or Apache helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft. I mean, whatever imagery comes to your mind, that's what Pharaoh had. And here, they're on the move. Now think of this also. Not only were the Jews scared, but so too were Pharaoh's men, because their leader was their God. He was deity, like the popes considered themselves to be in the Church of Rome. Yes, they have softened that in recent years, but they still believe that they are representing the one true God on the face of the earth. But like the Dalai Lama, he thinks he is deity in the flesh. And therefore, you've got the Egyptians, some conscripts, some professional soldiers, fearful. Because they know that they can't lead, their country cannot function without the Jews. And if you think of any country anywhere around the world which has persecuted the Jews and have expelled the Jews nearly every single time, such a country will collapse. Because whether you like it or not, Almighty God has given the Jews a special blessing, a special anointing. There's something about Jewry which makes the Gentiles jealous. And when Gentiles get jealous, they normally lash out at the Jews. And I thought this this morning, wouldn't it have been interesting had churches and Christians and religious people, especially during the Dark Ages, shown a bit more love, a bit more kindness to the Jews? I'm not saying the Jews would have got saved. I'm not saying the Jews would have received Jesus. We know that the devil has blinded their minds and their hearts, Second Corinthians chapter 4. But had Christendom shown more love to the Jews going back to the Dark Ages, it wouldn't have allowed the Jews to be overly suspicious and also hostile towards the Gentiles. 22. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Left and right. Matthew 25. On my left are going to be uh, the goats, and on the right are going to be the sheep. And if you think about what's going on here, it's a similar sort of imagery because the Jews are on the move. They are 
are being chased, pursued by some powerful people. When the Lord comes back uh, from Matthew 25, 32, he has all the nations before him as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats and the goats on the left and the sheep are on the right. And it's the same sort of a thing from Exodus chapter 14. Dry ground, picturing your salvation, if you will. Because again, salvation is supernatural. Before you were born, you had no say what colour your skin would be, what sexuality you would have, what country you would be born into. It was all decided by your parents, whether you like it or not. And the same is true of the creation of the world. You had no say in the creation of this world. And you had no say in the atonement. All of your past, present and future sins were dealt with at the cross. God has drawn all people to him, Jew and Gentile, and he's granted repentance to everyone. But now he expects you to appropriate the atonement. So 21-22 is dealing with physical salvation, physical deliverance. Whereas fast forward to the Gospels and the Epistles, it's dealing with supernatural salvation. Everlasting life, once saved, always saved. If you think of Simon Peter, on one occasion he sees the Messiah in the boat. And the Messiah is referred to as the captain of our salvation. And he says to the Lord, I want to come to you, Lord. And the Lord said, just come to me. And he gets out of the boat and he starts to walk to the Savior and he starts to panic, which you would imagine some of the Jews were doing. And the Messiah just reaches out his hand and catches Simon Peter's hand and keeps him safe. That's a picture of our salvation. We don't have to hold the Savior's hand to get saved. We don't have to hold his hand to stay saved. He holds our hand, he takes initiative, and once he has our hands, he won't let us go. 23. And Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. It's very difficult to think of a modern scenario, a modern catastrophe, when an entire division or brigade would be destroyed in such a way. The only conflict or conflicts that come anywhere near would have to be world war ii but i can't think of any one particular battle that comes to mind where five maybe six thousand people were destroyed in 30 minutes i can't think of anything stalingrad lasted around two years uh battles throughout greece italy and france took weeks sometimes months the allies would land in france Calais, Normandy, and other beaches. And it took the Allies, what, a year? To push Germany back into Germany? To push the Nazis back into Germany? 12 months? You've got, what, two, three, four million soldiers? And yet with Britain and America, aided by the Australians, the Canadians, and the New Zealanders, and other tough countries, tough fighting soldiers, it still took around 12 months. But this battle, if you will, is being fought by Jehovah. He's called a man of war. Revelation 19 says he comes back on a horse. And Psalm 110 says he starts to decapitate people. But you wouldn't hear that, would you? You won't hear that preached in any particular church of any denomination. But to think of a conflict, an army, or to think of a conflict, to think of a battle, to think of any recent engagement where a brigade or division, and I'm being conservative, Five, six, maybe up to 10,000 highly trained, skilled soldiers were just destroyed like that. I can't think of anything really. But here, 
according to the good old professor from St. Petersburg, the Institute of Oceanology, he would suggest that it was all done and dusted within 30 minutes. But, like I say, the Egyptians were fearful. The Jews are naturally fearful. Fear is a natural thing. It's not a good thing, but it is a natural thing. And therefore you've got the Jews that are fearful. You've got the Egyptians that are fearful. The adrenaline is really building. And Pharaoh, like Herod, Pharaoh, like Pilate, doesn't want to lose face in the presence of his lieutenants, his soldiers, his people, if you will. And therefore, he wants to be the bigger man. This also goes back to alpha males, beta males. Pharaoh and Herod, Pharaoh and Pilate were probably alpha males. And it's not always a good thing to be an alpha male, because if you are an alpha male, everything relies upon you. You are the top dog, like Patton, like Rommel, uh, or like Eisenhower, perhaps. They are probably the most famous and infamous generals, going back to World War II, whereas most leaders today, especially in the West, are beta males. Look at 24. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians, to the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians. And took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily. So that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel. For the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Go back to 48, go back to 67, go back to 75. You've got three occasions where the Arabs, all being Muslims, decided to take on Israel. And if you think about 1948, the Jews have been back in the land six months perhaps. And... On paper, it looked pretty uh, precarious for them. They would be using weaponry from the First World War, and not a ready fighting force yet. A good number of those Jews that went back to their land had survived World War II, had been in death camps. Germany, Poland, and elsewhere. And May the 14th, 1948, the UN officially recognises Israel's rights to return to their land. I think apart from Britain, which abstained, most of the powers that be, excluding the Muslim countries, of course, said, yes, we recognize Israel. And 48, the Muslim countries decide to move. They decide to march, a bit like you're reading from chapter 14, how the Egyptians would march. And if you think of an army marching, if you think of the Waffen SS marching, that puts a fear of God into you. If you think of... The Panzer Divisions on the move, that put the fear of God into you. If you read journals of Jews in occupied Europe, once those boots started to march, once those Germans started to sing and whistle and make a commotion, you knew that the Jews, or you knew that the Germans, were coming for the Jews. And that was great fear. So therefore, 48 is the same sort of a thing. But this time, the Nazis have been replaced by the Muslims. And 48, it looks like it's all going to be over within 30 minutes. If you use this analogy of the Egyptians being destroyed within 30 minutes, and by the grace of God, he fights for them. And yes, he would use Allied help, going back to uh, Wingate, a British major general that would train the Jews, and Mickey Marcus, the very brave American Jewish captain during World War II, who we've already spoken about, would be 
killed by friendly fire, very ironic, 1948 in Israel. And here it's the same sort of a thing. The Egyptians are Gentiles, the Muslims are Gentiles, the Egyptians, 1500 BC, are clear that the Lord is fighting for the Jews. The Muslims, 48, 67, 75, knew that the Lord was fighting for the Jews. You can't win. You can't beat the Lord. That's what Gamaliel would say over in Acts chapter 5. If it's of the Lord, we can't overthrow it. But if it's of men, it will eventually overthrow itself. Look at 24 again. Came to pass. I love that term, came to pass. But nothing comes to pass in hell. Nothing comes to pass in hell. You die without Christ, you're lost forever. But new Jerusalem, third heaven, paradise, new earth, call it what you will, it comes to pass. Every day is a blessing and it's good to be saved. And if you are saved, you should be pleased to be saved. You should thank the Lord for saving your soul. Most of the world are lost. Most of the world are on the road to ruin. Most of religious Christendom, professing Christianity, doesn't believe in this book that I'm reading this morning. They don't believe in this. A lot of Jews don't believe in this. A lot of liberal Jews go to synagogue twice a year, perhaps. Atonement, Day of Atonement, and uh, Hanukkah. But they don't really believe that Moses was their deliverer. And they certainly don't believe that Jesus was their Messiah. A lot of similarities between Moses and Messiah. Both had gaps in their early years. Both would lead their people out of captivity And both were revered and reviled. And it came to pass, 24, that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians, to the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled, disturbed, the host, the army of the Egyptians. And they took off their chariot wheels, and they drave, they drove them heavily, like a flat tire. If you shoot out a tire, nine times out of ten, the car will flip. If you detonate a device under a tank, nine times out of ten, the tank will go over. If you think of when the Israelis went into the Palestinian territories, quote-unquote, searching for Islamic terrorists, and around 2005, 2006, the Jews thought their tanks were invincible, and they were convinced that their tanks could withstand pretty much anything. And a load of tanks went into Janine, J. A-N-I-N, I think that's how you pronounce it and how you spell it from memory. And within a few hours of rolling into Janine, an Iranian pipe bomb was put under an Israeli tank and it blew. And that tank went up and it destroyed the Jewish occupants. That tank wasn't invincible. If you think about during the Balkans conflict back in 99, on one occasion an American stealth bomber was flying over Europe And those stealth bombers take off from America. They fly 24, 25 hours non-stop. They don't land in Europe. They go straight back to America. And that stealth bomber at the time was worth two, three billion dollars, state of the art. And it was flying over Yugoslavia, 1999, from memory. And from memory, what seemed to have occurred was there was a leak. There was a mole in the NATO high command. And... It has been suggested that the mole came from a Frenchman. And the Frenchman told the Serbs the coordinates for the stealth bomber. And that beautiful bird took off from Colorado. America flew 18 hours. Two occupants shot down over Serbia. And that beautiful bird, as they call it, or plane, 
to be more precise, was stripped. And the pilots, of course, were killed. But the plane was taken to Russia. There's no such thing as invincibility, not really. If you think about what took place in the China Sea, maybe a few years afterwards, during the time of George W. Bush, an American spy plane was flying at 30,000 feet over the China Sea, over parts of China. That thing came down, and the Chinese government arrested the American pilots, held them for several days, put them on television to humiliate them. A deal was done behind the scenes. The personnel were returned to America, but surprise, surprise, the Chinese kept the plane. So here, 24-25, you've got this army, a brigade, a division, heading in hot pursuits after the Jews. They thought this will all be over by tea time. A bit like World War I, we'll all be home by Christmas. And the Lord blows out the tires. And as a result, the chariot wheels become heavy. So that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. Why? For the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. What a terrifying admission. You wonder how many people in Israel thought the same back in 1948 when they won against the Muslims. That was part one. And then they won again in 67, part two. And they won again, 75, part three. If you go to Israel today, and I was there some years ago, most Israelis are secular and also atheist. But there are a small minority that are still quite religious, keep the Sabbath. But tragically, when it comes to the Old Testament, their beliefs are mixed. Most will hold to rabbinical Judaism. But it's pretty fair to say that Jews around the world, 48, 67, 75, thought, yes, the Lord is with us, and we give him thanks for that. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of Muslims that were part of those three failed invasions also knew that the Lord was for the Jews. Look at 26. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. If you speak to most Protestants, if you speak to most Catholics, if you speak to most evangelicals, they believe that Almighty God loves everyone, period, and that most of the world are going to go to heaven and few are going to go to hell. They got that completely back to front. Uh, yes, the Lord does have a love for the world, past tense. It says how God so loved the world, past tense, that he gave, past tense, his only begotten son. It's all past tense. And most religious people, I'm afraid to say, don't understand Almighty God. And most religious people don't read the Bible anymore, or they skim the Bible. But here you're looking at the collapse of a country. You're looking at the destruction of not only a brigade or a division, but Pharaoh, their token leader. If you think of tradition, we are told that Pilate would commit suicide. And he came into contact with the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Hosts, and he would say to him, what is truth? I came to testify of the truth. And Pilate turned around and said, huh, that's his own opinion. All truths are subjective. And he speaks to his wife, Claudia, and she says, don't get involved with that guy. I've had some pretty awful dreams overnight about the man called Jesus and we are also told by tradition that his wife was a secret Christian it's possible possible but Pilate saw him face to face turned him down Herod Archelaus from memory saw him face to face and turned him down and the Antichrist will see the Jews uh, tribulation and vicariously Jesus and he too 
will turn the Lord down. Which goes back to free will as well. I know that if you are a Calvinist, whether moderate or not, you have been led to believe that free will isn't scriptural. I'm afraid you have been deceived. There is free will, Old Testament, New Testament. Herod had the choice. He could have been saved. If you think of what the Apostle Paul would experience. Acts 25, 26, when he came into contact with, was it uh, the final Herod? Uh, forget which one it was now from memory. And he's speaking to the leader in Israel at the time, a Roman, again Gentile. And he says to him, I want you to become a Christian, in essence. I want you to be saved. Christ died for your sins. There's no such thing as limited atonement. Get rid of that dangerous doctrine. Christ dies for everyone and everything. So the love is limited. The love is there. But if you turn it down, if you pass it up, you will perish. Some people tell me that Almighty God loves everyone unconditionally. That isn't really the whole story. Here he's about to drown. And I mean drown. Pharaoh, their high priest, his lieutenants, and more junior members of staff. If you think of Acts chapter 12, on one occasion when King Herod was traveling on a journey, and that King Herod is Archelaus, um, the people said, this is a voice of a God, not of a man. And the Lord said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of that guy going around uh, Jerusalem, being carried like the popes would be up until 1979. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of that. And the Lord said, I'm going to kill Herod. And he would do, and here's a quick footnote, every pope, every pope since Pius XII has had an awful death. Paul VI was screaming on his deathbed. So too was John the Twenty-Third. Pius XII had hiccups for days, would have to have blood injections, hormone injections. John Paul I was probably poisoned. John Paul II had Parkinson's, was dribbling, was wetting himself, was spoiling himself. And his lieutenants, his nuns, his colleagues, priests, call them what you will, were having to help out the so-called infallible Holy Father. And they believe that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he is infallible concerning faith and morals. And John Paul II would cover up pedophile priests and nuns going back decades. And yet, was it four or five years ago? He's now a saint. And as somebody once said, we spent years praying for him. Now we're going to pray to him. 26. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So I wanted to read that twice. Because some people may say this is genocide. But it's not genocide. This is justice. This is the Lord's judgment. Now I don't want his justice. I don't want his judgment. You might want it. You might be a very decent, upright person, never sinned since you got saved. Rule me out. I want his mercy. I came to the cross 16 years ago. I got down on my knees. I believed on him. I received him. I was saved. I don't want his justice or judgment. We're told from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we will all have to appear at the judgment seat of Christ to answer for things done in the body and in the flesh, whether good or bad. And people say, but Christians can't sin after they're saved. What's Paul talking about then? If you can't sin after you're saved, why does he say good or bad? He wouldn't say that, would he? If you can't sin after you're saved, and all sin is sin, what does James say? If you break one of the laws or one of the commandments, you've broken all of the commandments. And yet Paul told you how we will all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for things done in the body, whether good 
or evil. So 26 is again dealing with the Lord's judgment, his justice, not his mercy. And the body of Christ will have to answer for their actions on a one-by-one basis. You won't stand with your church, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, Calvinist or Armenian. You will stand on your own. And you will have to answer for yourself, not concerning your salvation, allow me to say. Your salvation, praise the Lord, was dealt with at the cross. All of your sins have been paid for covered by the precious blood of the Lamb. But your service, like crowns, like rewards, like how active you were in the army of the Lord, will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. And if you die without confessing your sins to the Lord, you'll have to answer for them at the judgment seat of Christ. So I'm looking at 23. I am looking at 24. 25, 26. I am seeing the humiliation, the destruction of the Egyptians. I am sure if you were growing up in the 1930s in Germany. And I've seen some of those newsreels of Hitler speaking. Talk about mesmerising. He, he went to one place. It may have been Hamburg. 19... 36 1937 and he arrives and he's standing at this table this uh podium and he stands there in absolute silence for seven minutes now i'm going to just be quiet for seven seconds to make this point seven seconds is a long time you've got thirty thousand people that have come from all over Germany to see their Messiah. He's a small man, uh, five foot four, maybe five foot five, no more than five foot six, a corporal back in World War I, nothing much to look at, an average artist. And yet when that man came into a room, he could hold a crowd. You've got 35,000 Germans, middle class, lower, upper class Germans, have paid good money to come in here, Hitler. That man could hold a crowd. And he made them wait for seven minutes. And you can watch this on YouTube. I mean, I just kept quiet for seven seconds. That's long enough, isn't it? That guy kept them waiting for seven, uh, seven minutes. And I'm sure had I gone and seen him back in the 30s as an unsaved man, I would have thought he's the real deal. Let's get behind him. I'm sure people got behind Stalin. In fact, we know they did when the Germans surrounded Stalin. He said, he said uh, open the churches. Open the prisons, get the priests out of prison, get them to fight, support Holy Mother Russia, and they did. And I'm sure there were people that looked at Pharaoh and thought, he will last forever, like the Romanovs. And all these guys over the years, like Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, in their day were pretty powerful men. And in their minds, they thought they would rule forever. Constantine had two sons, and he probably hoped that they would all replace him and live long, happy lives. That wasn't to be the case. They would kill each other physically. And Alexander the Great, a homosexual drunk, killed himself, or was killed, I think, in a fight, a homosexual fight from memory, by the age of 33. Interesting figure. If you think of Freemasonry. But the Egyptians are fearful. Pharaoh is terrified. The Jews are fearful. Going back to their murmurings, complainings about... Moses holding them back. Contrast that to the Gospels when the Jews would attack the Lord Jesus Christ. Or even when John the Baptist would say, are you the one that we are looking for? Or should we be looking for another? Meaning, what about the Roman leaders? Kick them out. Get rid of them. 
And the Lord will say, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to God that which is God's. 27. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Five, six thousand Egyptians drowned. If you go back to the earlier chapters from the book of Exodus, chapter 1. In fact, go back to chapter 1. What do they say? What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, look at 17. But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children, alive. Twenty, therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, and waxed very mighty. Sixteen, and he said, being Pharaoh, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. So boys are to be executed, girls are to be uh, preserved, sped. Contrast that to Matthew chapter 2, when Herod orders the death of all of the newborn boys under the age of 2. Look at 22. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So Pharaoh said this, Take the boys and put them into the sea, like drown them, and the Lord said, I haven't forgotten that, Pharaoh. What you have suggested is a good idea, but it won't be my boys that are going to be drowned. It's going to be your boys that are going to be drowned. And like I said a few weeks ago, Pharaoh would see the death of his own son, his firstborn son, as a result of the Lord's intervention, execution, and therefore Satan, always behind these world leaders, these wicked leaders, would retaliate. And allow Jehovah's firstborn son to be killed. So this is how it really works in essence. You've got the line of the Messiah producing good godly men, quote unquote. And you've got the line of the Antichrist producing wicked reprobate men. Or put it this way. If you think of a typical movie. A typical movie will consist of the good guy and the bad guy. And there's always a woman found in such a movie and she is the damsel in distress. And therefore the good guy will try, try and uh, rescue the damsel in distress. The bad guy will try to destroy the damsel in distress. And behind the good guy and the bad guy, in the corner of the good guy is God Almighty. In the corner of the bad guy is the devil. Of course, you know what that picture is, don't you? The good guy is Jesus. The bad guy is Satan. The damsel is the church and the bad guy behind or the ultimate baddie if you will is the devil so let me say this and i will close for today when we talk about the mercy of the lord we have to define it we have to explain it we don't want to deceive ourselves and believe that good people quote unquote go to heaven and bad people quote unquote go to hell people go to heaven based on what christ has done for them and people will go to hell based on how they receive what Christ has done for them. Pharaoh, like Herod. Pharaoh, like Pilate. Pharaoh, like Herod the Great. Archelaus, and I think it was King Agrippa, from memory, decided to turn down 
the Lord's mercy, grace, and as a result, perished. And like I say, Pilate, according to tradition, would commit suicide. But those that did turn to the Lord, like Rahab, under the leadership of Joshua, or people within Caesar's household, which Paul speaks about, were saved because they were identified with a crucified, risen Saviour. So we'll close it there and return next week to hopefully finish the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. But one more time, what Pharaoh thought was a great idea concerning the killing of newborn boys by drowning them into the Red Sea. The Lord said, yes, but that's not what's going to happen, Pharaoh. I will take you and your men and put you guys into the Red Sea, which, one more time, going back to what Professor Volzinger said, and I hope I pronounced his name right, the total distance of the reef is 4.2 miles. And therefore, if the wind blew all night, and he thinks it did, at the speed of 67, that is 67 miles per hour, it would have taken the Jews four hours to cross such a distance, and yet within 30 minutes, it's all over, and the Egyptians are drowned. And one final thought from memory, I think Revelation speaks about there being silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Mm. So that figure of 30 minutes needs to be further studied by students of Scripture to get a deeper understanding of it. And just one quick uh, further explanation concerning the charisma that Hitler would have enjoyed, so too would have Pharaoh, so too would have Herod and Pilate, and with all that charisma, as mesmerizing as it would have been when push came to shove, they all died anyway, 10 out of 10 people die, and if you die without Christ, you are forever lost. So if you ever wondered whether or not the Lord is completely sovereign, I think it's worth just saying a couple of things concerning chapter 14 because God is always behind everything concerning those that are his verses 1 and 2 on top of that he will direct their route concerning the children of Israel and he even tells them in advance what their enemies would think and do verse 3 then he tells his people what he will do once their enemies decide what they will do verse 4 God is like a master chess player up in the third heaven so if you think of Romans eight twenty eight, one of the clearest verses and chapters in the entire Bible concerning the sovereignty of the Lord and the welfare of his child concerning any generation under any circumstances, you see it happening in the Old Testament and you see it happening in the New Testament. So I think it's worth just saying that because every so often those of us which are non-Calvinist and speak against Calvinism like the tulip, which is unscriptural, are automatically attacked as not holding to the sovereignty of the Lord. We certainly do, and I'll discuss that more this morning. Exodus chapter 14, Exodus chapter 14, look at verse 27 if you will. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, so once again, Almighty God is behind everything, going back to my earlier comments, and therefore God and God alone would kill thousands, starting with the plagues. Now he will kill thousands in the sea, going back to what I said over the last couple of Sundays, how Pharaoh wanted the young Jewish boys to be drowned. 
bit like what you find in China, the one-child policy, which I now believe they are relaxing. But for a long time, if you had more than two children in China, in fact, you couldn't have more than one child in China. And if you did, a forced abortion was called for. Also, it's interesting to me when it speaks about the sea, verse 27, in the masculine, the masculine pronoun. So think of it this way. You've got sea, you've got sinking, you've got salvation. You've got salvation, you've got sea leading into Moses. So Moses is connected with the sea, which is connected with salvation. There's a picture of Old Testament salvation concerning their physical deliverance. Sea equals saviour equals salvation concerning the Messiah, of course. The Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 10 made the case how Moses and the children of Israel were baptised in the sea, which we are reading about this morning. And he goes on to say how they believed in the rock, and that rock which they believed in and followed was the Messiah. The rock, of course, is what we are believing in for today. Or turn it around, back in the Old Testament, people were saved by believing on a promise. We are saved by believing on the one who gave the promise back in the Old Testament. Going back to faith alone, connected to imputation. So C is connected with sinking, which is connected with salvation. Salvation is connected with C, connected with saviour, going back to the Messiah. And hopefully if time allows, I will further elaborate on that this morning. 28. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. So you've either got a brigade or a division. You've got at least 5,000 highly trained Egyptians, hot on the heels of the escaping Jews. Now again, on paper, if you were to say to the leaders in Israel that one day they will be lined up against the Egyptians, they would have run a mile. I want to give you some figures this morning, if I may, concerning a similar catastrophe which took place not very long ago. But keep reading with me, verse 29. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. It's a picture of the narrow road. The narrow road from Matthew seven thirteen speaks about salvation, speaking about the route to heaven being a narrow one, and therefore the narrow road is a narrow route to redemption. Many are called, few are chosen. So the children of Israel are walking upon dry land in the midst of the sea, middle of the sea, Going back to what we discussed last Sunday. And the waters were wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. We can only imagine how high this exodus, this parting of the Red Sea would have been. I know many movies over the years have tried to guess at just how much or how high this exodus would have consisted of. But either way, you've got anywhere from two to six million Jews, thousands of livestock, going through the Red Sea, and I mean the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds. And on top of that, they are being chased by thousands of Egyptians. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. May the 26th to the 4th of June, 1940, a terrible situation took place in France, referred to as Dunkirk. And during that catastrophe, Britain would send 400,000 men to 
push the Germans back into Germany. And on paper, the War Office, on the orders of Winston Churchill, were of the belief that they could defeat the Germans, and therefore many men, conscripts, were scrambled, sent to France. But what they weren't anticipating was the pushback from the Germans. And I sat down this morning, reading these verses, thinking of a recent catastrophe, not really many that come to mind. And I was very uh, interested to rediscover that out of the 400,000 troops that were sent to France, 3,500 were killed, 61,774 were injured. Britain, by the grace of God, was able to evacuate 85% of those men on the beach. So if you think of 3,500 dead bodies, that's a pretty gruesome sight. And here, verse 30, tells you how the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And it's my belief that the Lord saved Britain back in 1940 for many diverse reasons. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Many of those British soldiers were 16, 17, 18, scared. They were rushed to France, probably ill-equipped. I'm not sure their training was particularly good. By the end of World War II, Britain was equal with Germany. Pre-1939, Britain was probably five or six years behind Germany due to weak governments, pacifist governments, a bit like today, complacent governments. The Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. The Lord saved Britain that day out of the hand of the Germans. And Israel, Britain, saw the Egyptians, Germans dead upon the seashore. Okay, so I'm taking a slight liberty. But I want to make the point, going back to what I said at the beginning of this broadcast, how God is always behind everything concerning those that are his. Britain is a very special country in the eyes of the Lord. Through Britain, we received the King James Bible, which came to us thanks to James Stewart. And James Stewart was a very interesting monarch. A bright, brilliant linguist. There aren't many kings, or queens for that matter, that come anywhere near King James's brilliance. And yes, he did confess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Had a faith in the one true God. And therefore the Lord looked at James, blessed him. Because James, of course, is Jacob. And Jacob means prince. And King James was a prince. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the prince of princes. And therefore, because of King James's right to the throne, the Lord would wait until a boy was born back in 1566. And from the birth of that boy up until his death in 1625, Britain was greatly blessed. And that's also reflected with Elizabeth I and other people. Once Britain turned its back from the idols of Catholicism, once Israel broke out from the grip of Egypt and turned her back, on the idols of Egypt, Israel was greatly blessed. So too was Britain. 31. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servants Moses. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this verse 31 is really a three-part verse. Israel saw the works which the Lord did. The Jews are entitled to see signs and wonders. They feared the Lord, leading into their relationship with him. It's one thing to know of the Lord, but do you know him personally? Believed him, 
and his servant Moses. And that's why the Messiah would do so many miracles. He did miracles to awaken people to his claim to be the Messiah. He did miracles to strengthen the faith of the disciples. But he also did miracles because he loved the people. When he arrived in uh, in Israel, a lot of sick people, a lot of people in bad ways, not always sin-related. And it was the job of the Messiah to heal his covenant people. By his stripes, we are healed. And therefore, Moses is now going to show the children of Israel that he is their deliverer. He's got the sign gifts to go with it. But go back to Dunkirk, if you will, for one more time with me. During those dark days from May the 26th to the 4th of June 1940, it looked pretty precarious. And I'm sure that when the Lord saved Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians, it too looked very precarious. It didn't look particularly good. People were saying, in fact, I showed you from last Sunday, it would have been better had we been left in Egypt. And I'm sure there were people in Britain who were saying it would have been better had we done a deal with the Nazis. I know Joe Kennedy father of Jack and Robert Kennedy, was a pacifist. And he was writing back to Roosevelt in America saying, leave Britain, Britain is finished. She can't survive. The Germans are too powerful. Almost goading him, in a sense, to kick Britain to the gutter. And there were other people in Britain who were secret Nazis. And I'm sure there were people in Egypt that were secret collaborators with the Egyptians. And once Moses arrived and said, It's time to pack up and go. People are saying, I'm not happy with that. It doesn't sound right to us if we just disappear. We know a good thing when we have it. We've done pretty well in Egypt going back to World War II. Yes, there were Jews in different camps in and around Europe that worked very closely with the Third Reich. Got a lot of sweeteners. A lot of uh, deals were done. And when the end of the war came, some of those Jews had to go back to what it was like before the war. It's hard to think, isn't it? But I'm looking at verses 27 to 31, and I'm thinking about a people from 2 to 6 million. I'm thinking about a large number of livestock. I'm thinking about Pharaoh, armed to the teeth, around 6,000, and I'm being conservative. I'm thinking about Dunkirk, 1940. I'm thinking about the entire German, not just their land forces, but the air force. We know that Goering sent a lot of aircraft to wipe out the Brits and the RAF had to scramble many squadrons to keep the Germans back. And these are very interesting similarities because when the Lord wants to save a people, he will move heaven and earth. Going back to how he's always behind everything, verses 1 and 2 tell you that. And on top of that, he will direct the route to those that are his, also found from 1 and 2. Once he does that, he tells his people via Moses what they will think concerning the enemies of Israel. Verse 3, then he tells his people what he will do once their enemies decide what they will do. Verse 4, going back to Romans eight twenty-eight. So when we try and pull all these verses together, what we are really understanding, and I hope you are following me, is how the Lord will literally take a nation apart during that catastrophe in 1940 there was a british major and he was a hyper calvinist a tulip and he saw what was going on and during those awful days which like i say would result in three and a half thousand brits being killed and almost 62,000 injured 
He's got planes flying overhead. He's got artillery on the ground. He's got snipers picking out his men one by one. This major, probably around 50, typical Calvinist, never given a tract out a day in his life, never shared the gospel a day in his life, came from a very middle-class background, self-employed before World War II, now finds himself in a very perilous situation. A bit like Moses, a bit like Joshua, a bit like Aaron, or post the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got Peter and John going around Jerusalem preaching the gospel. They are detained, they are beaten. Paul says he was three days in the deep, and therefore, during these dark days, May to June 1940, this British major can see death all around him. He can smell death all around him. He gets down on his knees and he starts praying. For the first time in his life, this man is really praying. He believes in the sovereignty of the Lord, so do I. He's gone through life without a care in the world. Doesn't need to share the gospel. He believes in predestination, something which all Calvinists hold to. And he knows that he's saved, praise the Lord, as I do. But he also realises that he's got a care of duty concerning his men. And this British major, around 50, goes down on his knees and he starts praying. And I mean really praying for the first time in his life. And he's praying for these poor wretched souls all around him. Young conscripts, scared. In fact, some are too young to fight. They lied about their dates, their birth dates, their ages like they would do back in World War I. And this old general, excuse me, this old major, on his knees on a very damp, wet beach, blood all around him, people screaming and shouting, terrified, waiting for the naval ships to be sent to bring them back to Britain. The King of England called for a day of prayer. Thousands of boats were sent from all over Britain to bring back 400,000 men. You can't really imagine it, can you? You can't imagine it. And this old Major, like I say, is praying and he's praying for these wretched souls all around him. And he's saying, Almighty God, I know that I'm saved. I'm trusting in your blood. I'm trusting in your covenants like Oliver Cromwell would pray, another five point Calvinist. And after 25 minutes on his knees, there's blood all around him. There's weeping and wailing. I mean, the scene is just horrendous. On paper, it looked like it was the end of the British expedition force. And he gets up off his knees and he's got 5,000 soldiers on their knees. Young squaddies praying with this major. And the Lord got those guys off the beach. So salvation can come in different uh, routes, different ways. You've got physical salvation, 1940. I would say most of those men were unsaved. But going back to the blessing... That came to James. Because where the word of a king is. There is power. The Lord protected that force of 400,000. He would protect over 2.5 million Jews. 1500 BC. He would protect the early church. And even to this present. He is protecting Israel. And we've already spoken about many attacks. Which they have experienced. From 1948 right up until 1975. And therefore if you are saved. If you are a Bible believer. You should be greatly blessed to know that your Lord loves you. And if you are in his will. If you are in fellowship with him. He will do whatever he can to 
keep you safe. So I think the my attempt to draw similarities between the Exodus, people of Israel escaping Pharaoh, being a type of the Antichrist, which also is spoken of many times in Revelation, when the Antichrist uh, tries to track down the Jewish believing remnant. I see many similarities. And it's the same sort of thing with Almighty God saving the children of Israel. So allow me to say this and I'll close. Creation is sovereign. The deliverance of the Jews was sovereign. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension is sovereign. It's supernatural. The rapture is supernatural. The second coming is supernatural. This is all of the Lord. This is all of the Lord and by the grace of God we are able to partake in what goes on we are able to see and experience what goes on almighty god didn't need moses he didn't need aaron he didn't need joshua he didn't need any of the old testament greats didn't need paul didn't need peter didn't need john doesn't need you doesn't need me messiah had to come to cover our sins and like i said if you think of first corinthians 10 paul links their baptism with their physical deliverance, and he links our uh, spiritual baptism with our literal deliverance. In other words, we are baptized into Christ. Ephesians 4.4, 4, one Lord, one church, one baptism. Not water baptism. Yes, it's true that Moses and co. went through the sea and were physically baptized, if you will, and yet read it carefully. No water touched them. They walked straight through the Red Sea. Going back to what I said last Sunday, it took around four and a half hours that strong east wind, and they walk straight through the middle of the Red Sea. No water touched them. You're not saved by being baptized by water. You're saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saved by receiving his blood covering. So you want to argue that you are saved by being baptized literally by water, and then go back to the Old Testament to try and make your argument. You will fail. They weren't baptized. No water touched their heads. The Lord spared them. They walk straight through that narrow route to redemption. One more time, going back to Matthew 7.13. So I think I will close it there and just say one final thing, that the sea in the Old Testament is linked to salvation concerning one's physical deliverance. The sea in the New Testament is linked to one's salvation concerning our spiritual deliverance. You can't really get around it, can you? Moses is a type of Messiah. Moses takes the people of Israel out of Egypt and Messiah takes the people of God out of Egypt, being a type of the world into the body of Christ, into the promised land. It's supernatural from beginning to end. And one final story. My grandfather was there and had he been killed, had he been part of that three and a half thousand that were mowed down or had he been parts of that figure of 62,000 that would have been injured I wouldn't be standing here this morning and that needs to be said because out of all those soldiers 400,000 and we can only guess how many would go on to be saved I'm thinking very few I don't know but out of that figure of 400,000 Patrick had to be born I had to be born Mm. and had my grandfather been killed by uh, by either the Air Force German Air Force or the troops the german army there'd be no ministry there'd be no study from yours truly this morning and britain can i say would be 
somewhat of a darker place. I'm not blowing my own trumpet, I'm just making the point. But by the grace of God, he got 85% off that beach. And out of that figure of 85%, 338,226 men was my grandfather. And that goes back to, if you will, the King of England calling for a day of prayer. King James would call for seven years of prayer during the commissioning of the King James Bible. Those boys, those men, those gentlemen would meet every day, groups within groups. And they would pray for the Lord's blessing on the King James Bible. And that committee of men would consist of Calvinists and Arminians. And that book came out initially called uh, the Bible, the Holy Bible. Later on, it would be called the King James Bible. But the point is, where the word of a king is, there is power. Moses is a type of king, Old Testament. Jesus Christ is certainly a king, not of the church, but of Israel. The term king, Jesus, is, is connected with Israel. Second coming, thousand year reign. But for the purpose of this study this morning, Moses is pictured as a saviour. And Jesus Christ is pictured as a saviour for the here and now, being the church age.